0: Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love.
1: Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. This time we're visited by Michael from the Red Line podcast. I know it's kind of easy to mess us both up because the Eastern Border and Red Line sound similar. Both of our show names sound like some subject that the other person could speak about on their own show, in a way. But we're here to discuss recent political events and not so recent ones because, overall, a lot of people are going to be Googling up each of our shows and probably trying to find out more about what's happening on whole post-Soviet sphere, specifically in in Russia and Ukraine lately. But to be frank, all of this ties together with a much more kind of a cultural thing that's going on in the post-Soviet sphere, so to speak, post-Soviet area, throughout these last 30 years with all the culture and everything. So we're here to discuss a little bit of um, the national peculiarities of democracy. That's how I'd like to put it. Please, Michael, go and inform, dearest comrades. Why are you here? And why we are totally not aiming at you with a pistol currently.
2: <laughs> it's always great to be here. Uh, so I'm Michael. I'm the host of the Red Line. Uh, we're a geopolitics show that has uh, experts from the CIA, the White House, FSB, you know, presidents, uh, prime ministers, all sorts of people come on. Uh, you know, we have three guests for each episode, and we tackle one big geopolitical issue each fortnight. And we've, and uh, my background, I was a conflict journalist, uh, mostly focusing on. The Middle East and the old Soviet bloc. So, this is back in my area of the world. And, uh, you know, no one, I I think all my family and friends and girlfriend are sick of hearing me talk about Central Asia and the Soviet bloc. So, it's uh, good to finally have someone who's willing to listen to it.
1: Well, not like they have a choice. (laughs) I mean, no, seriously, Michael's actually very competent and serious on his show, much less that I'm here. This is where Michael's allowed to be a bit silly because we'd like to take some breather from the miserable realities of our everyday lives by extremely dark comedy. (laughs) But first things first, I think one of the most defining things if you look at all this warsaw Pact, this my side of the iron curtain countries which includes not only the baltics and and poland's and okay it's less in poland and and czech republic i suppose because they were sort of under the umbrella but not exactly in the soviet union but if you look at the central asian republics and belarus and all that stuff and even russia actually russia to a bit less crazy extent even than there you can spot two things number one um constantly in russian speaking media the West get portrayed as this foul, evil organization that is always trying to undermine the well-being of other peoples, like foul West destroying our whatever values we have this time, introducing uh, black cars to uh, Turkmenistan, for example. And secondly, we can take a look at them. many, many weird dictators, and some of them are really weird, like, again, Turkmenistan, with Gurban Guli, Gurban. You are a hero, sir. Sometimes I, I wonder why. what happened over there with with all of this. Why such negativity? And My theory is the fact that in the 90s, Boris Yeltsin sort of has to be responsible with all this, with all the oligarchs, which also plopped up in Belarus and everywhere else. That's my take, because before we even can dig into what they're doing now, we have to understand, well, how did we end up after this collapse of the Soviet Union and all that good stuff with a bunch of people who are definitely not living in what we would call a democratic environment?
2: So it really depends. I think it's different from every state to every state. But one thing that happened after the collapse of the Soviet Union is everyone was supposed to get these, you know, you'd have businesses or, or large public works that would be divided up and everyone was supposed to get one little share. But people were so just desperate for bread and food and whatever they can get at the time, that a lot of these oligarchs that had a little bit of capital behind them, whether through corruption or whether through outside trading, that they bought up, you know, entire apartment blocks worth of shares uh, for pennies on the dollar, knowing that, you know, hey, give me your share in this power company, and I'll give you bread for a week. And people go, well, you know, I need bread to eat, so they grab the bread, and uh, this is how a lot of these oligarchs and the people who were in the sort of the Oligarchic class at the very end of the Soviet bloc ended up maintaining a lot of their power. This is particularly prevalent in Central Asia, where you know guys like um, Nazarbayev, who was president of Kazakhstan until very recently, he was from the old communist times. He's been in there since. You know the effectively the rulers of Turkmenistan, you know who effectively came in from before the transition to Turkmenistan. Uh, even uh, Karimov, who was the leader of Uzbekistan, he's from before that era as well. The Transition of power, a lot of these sort of guys who quickly consolidated during that breakdown of the Soviet Union and managed to hold on to their power and managed to hold on to ruling their areas of the world. So, yeah, it's it's kind of a continuation on resources build resources.
1: Yeah, something similar happened here in the Baltics as well. You know, we had a lot of Soviet army here, which had to leave by 1994. All these people, ex Soviet army guys, would have to leave. And some of them didn't really want to. And A lot of people really didn't understand, like you said, these vouchers, as we call them, of privatization. And a lot of people were starving. So one way how these Soviet army people just kind of stayed here is they used their resources to just buy up all the certificates for, like you said, giving people some bread. And now all of our rent market in Riga is vastly skewed because of that, because they all bought apartments and whatnot. I think that happened everywhere. And I mentioned in my MMM, the scam episode, how, for example, Mavrodi made his whole empire throughout this but all these things could fluctuate weirdly because i think one thing that is in common with all these countries is that this whole process of denationalization you know privatization was extremely corrupt because the people who were sitting on the councils of which businesses should be privatized and for what value all of them got obscenely rich and obscenely wealthy and a lot of them at least here are undergoing court sentences
2: i mean moscow still has the highest per capita of billionaires anywhere in the world like you think it would be Abu Dhabi, but it's Moscow because a lot of these oligarchs managed to consolidate their wealth. It's a weird, the very rich were very happy with the transition. Uh, and then, you know, from having traveled in this world quite a lot, particularly when you talk to people in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and even some of these sort of regional bits of Russia, you tend to hear the yes, well, it's not the best system. And yes, it's not completely democratic. But we all saw how bad the Russians were at the very end of the Soviet Union. And we don't want that. We'd rather have a stable, semi-democratic dictatorship than the free-for-all that was the end of the Soviet Union. Uh, and a lot of people have only experienced those two types of government, so they don't really have this yardstick to compare it to. You know, they're not like, well, oh, well, you know, Czechia is pretty nice and so is Uzbekistan, but which one's better? It's, you know, hey, do you want what, you know, the Soviet era or the end of the Soviet era or what we have now? And I think that's prevalent in particularly some of the older generation's minds.
1: Yeah, and also kind of characterizes why in a lot of these places, internet is being censored a lot. Because whatever the people find out that, um, well, everything is not failing so terribly as they've been told all the time.
2: Turkmenistan, as of last week, has now officially taken the crown for slowest internet in the entire world. Uh, with to download a, uh, about, was it, five meg takes two days. It's, it's getting that crazy now.
1: Oh, oh wow. Then again, there is this upper limit of craziness and how far do these people actually go? Since Lukashenko, when he started out, Sure, he was authoritarian. He also used to do some imprisonments, but there weren't like protests to the mass scale like we see now, right? But at the same time, he's now gone from your average kind of authoritarian, kind of flirting with the West type of person to literally kidnapping planes and using water cannons on grandmas. And then Turkmenistan, our favorite subject because of how insane it is, black cars are now banned there. And and opera is banned in video games as well. And I don't know, and and then across the border you have Kyrgyzstan, which is at least well trying. They're trying really hard to be democratic, but uh, they Kyrgyzstan is known in the community as the place where coups have been, coups and riots and whatever happened on basically every fortnight.
2: So it's a, it's a little more complicated. So effectively, if you look at the five Central Asian republics, all of them went to effectively you know tajikistan went into civil war and eventually a a strong man came to power Uh, Turkmenistan went to a dictatorship so did uzbekistan so did Kazakhstan. kyrgyzstan actually elected a physicist in their first election uh, and actually went to go on this really democratic round and it worked pretty well i mean the investment came in people were much more particularly in the west were much more favorable to Kyrgyzstan. going hey look this actually looks like it could be a reasonable place but what then happened is things began to start destabilizing and ten- ethnic tensions particularly began between the north and the south. And you had this brewing of problems. Uh and effectively all the in, you know, it's not a rich country. You having been there a few times, it's it's a bit squiffy in points. And yes, there were multiple coups and, and there were multiple because the security services weren't particularly strong. Uh and, you know, people were allowed to assemble, which didn't happen in a lot of the other, you know, Central Asian republics. It almost reinforced, you know, everything around them. You'd hit all these sort of pro karimov guys in Uzbekistan go. Well, look how crazy Kyrgyzstan is at the moment. We, you know, we, this is why democracy wouldn't work here in Uzbekistan.
1: I thought it's all about kind of this building of institutions mm. because once the Soviet Union collapsed, we, like no one here really had any history of institutionalized parliament. Mm. The, the British take the crown for that because you know, if you have an institution like Congress in the U.S. or Houses of Parliament in Britain, then you know you have something to rely on, and you know that the power is going to get checked. But when parliament just appears out of nowhere basically and you have to figure out how to work within all this system and institutions are all weak. And then that's when all these strong men can actually, you know, take power and discredit these institutions even without, you know, letting them develop in some form, I think.
2: But also the fact that there's just there was you know, the whole system of government in these places were effectively designed to be very, very managed. And a lot of these Central Asian republics took large subsidies from the rest of the Soviet bloc. You know, it was a huge economic catastrophe for a lot of these Central Asian republics. And a lot of these, when you actually sort of go right to the end of the Soviet era and do some surveys on how pro they are, uh, even when they're sort of not as biased as you think they would be, a lot of them still have pro sentiments. Even today, there is a lot of the older classes in some of these, particularly Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, who believe the Soviet era was a good time. You know, it was, I think there's some rose-colored glasses going on there. Um, But it's, it's a very different thing for these Central Asian republics, that a lot of them would barely see a change between... You know, republic times and uh, and obviously the, the Soviet era times. And it's actually funny we're doing this because I think what tomorrow is the 30th anniversary of Kazakhstan becoming a republic, which is the last Soviet republic to leave. It was uh, by that point, what Russia had left the Soviet Union. It was just Kazakhstan holding the you know keeping the lights on in the office.
1: Oh yeah, and what what now is Nur Sultan used to be the Soviet capital for a while.
2: Well, before that, it was it was Almaty. Uh, because Almaty is the biggest city in Kazakhstan, um, but it's really close. I'm a, to drive from Almaty to, to Bishkek it takes you like an hour and an hour and a bit, but they moved the capital into the desert, into the kind of center of Kazakhstan, um, built this artificial capital that was, was called Astana. Uh, and they spent, I'm exaggerating here, but hundreds of millions of dollars on this you know, Astana campaign, calling the airline Air Astana, the Astana cycling team. Advertising Astana, and then as Nazarbayev left in this sort of chaotic, there was lots of protests saying, "You know, hey, you've been in since what 80, 88. Uh, you got to leave now." This was about a year ago. He left the parliament, renamed Astana to uh, Nur Sultan, which is his which is his first name. It would be like to give a sort of perspective, you know, Donald Trump getting kicked out of the White House, and on the way out, he renamed, you know, Washington is renamed to Donald. It was a it was a pretty chaotic time for in Kazakhstan there.
1: My favorite thing about the renaming was that um, a listener sent me this link that just like in every other country, they had a website called the Escorts of Astana. and then they renamed it to Escorts of Nur Sultan, which is just amazing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's a little uh, surely someone there's a little on the nose, that one. because um, yeah, he's been, you know, to put it, very mildly corrupt uh, by quite a big amount, uh, particularly. So BTB Bank, which is one of the major banks of Kazakhstan, has had Nur Sultan all over a few years. Um, he effectively pick board members, he'll pick runners, he'll put his you know hand in the cookie jar and he's been caught multiple times uh, and yet he gets away with it. Most of his kids live in you know London or, uh, and they all buy houses. and Yeah, Nur Sultan's been incredibly corrupt and been caught with <clears throat> multiple scandals, to put it politely. So Nur Sultan's escort seems a... Uh, like someone's definitely in on the joke there.
1: <laughs> one, one thing, though, is that uh, also a big role is played by the Russian media since, well, unlike in the other parts of the world, over here and everywhere where Soviet Union had some influence, everyone speaks Russian mm. to each other. Just like the rest of the world speaks English, we speak Russian. Mm. Well, I also, sp- I also speak English, if you haven't noticed, but that's beside the point. The thing is that there's a kind of Russian media everywhere, Russian language media, which also, well, in Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia and Poland, for example, we had our own traditions of some sort of local language stuff. But if you go to Belarus, for example, the Belarusian language, which, yes, it exists, is sort of pushed aside. Everything's dominated by Russian language news and Russian kind of pro-criminal culture because those are the most two channels. And that, that happens everywhere. And I know that Kazakhstan recently decided to move away from Cyrillic alphabet and move to kind of traditional, you know, Latin, as they call it, alphabet, to get closer with Turkey, in a way. Mm -hmm. And that was also claimed in Russian news that it was a huge loss for the Russian sphere of influence, that Kazakhstan and a lot of those Central Asian countries are actually willing to move closer to their ties with Turkey and kind of, you know, Hang out with their other brother, which is Turkey and Erdogan in this case, instead of Russia. How do you think will will this somewhat change and, and push people towards something else, this moving closer to Turkey?
2: Yeah, it's something that we're seeing quite a lot through this region. So Mongolia is going through a very similar thing, where they're moving away from the Cyrillic script and and towards a Latin script. Their idea is that it makes business a little bit easier. Uh, and yes, they are trying to reach out to Turkey, and Turkey's doing a lot of outreach to this regional world, both for Central Asia as well as Afghanistan and, and Pakistan particularly. But there's still like quite a lot of good sentiment towards Russia. A lot of Russian television gets watched. You know, When you go into all the bars and clubs, it's all Russian media on all the TVs. Uh, the lingua franca in the region is Russian. So when you go around, you know, particularly let's say in Kazakhstan, everyone will speak Russian. Uh, in Kyrgyzstan, it's kind of a Krushen, which is a mix between Kyrgyz and Russian. Uh, Uzbekistan, everyone speaks Uzbek and about you know, 80, 90% of the country speaks Russian. Uh, it gets a little bit less in Turkmenistan, but yeah, it's there. And Tajikistan, almost everyone speaks Russian again, um, as well as Tajik. Yeah, Russian still has a very, very heavy influence in Central Asia. And it's particularly interesting where you see Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, who have their economies very, very tied to China. Uh, and the oligarchic class is quite tied to China at the moment. But the general public seems to be much more happy with Russia. A lot of it has to do with remittances. Uh, A lot of these guys will, you know, when they go up and and they want to go work overseas and earn some money and then come back, they all go to Russia, they don't go to China. Russia still has a large influence, particularly when it comes to sort of Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan uh, for remittances. Russia is still a huge part of some of these economies. Uh, In the case of Tajikistan, it's somewhere, depending on the year, of around 55 to 60% of the economy comes from Tajik workers going off to Russia, working as street sweepers and barkeeps and and construction workers and then sending their paychecks back to Tajikistan. Um, Russia is still a huge influence in this region.
1: That's the thing, because you know that before 2014, similar things were happening in Ukraine. And it was weird since, you know, I visited there and spoke with people and people on the ground and, it felt weird to hear that. Yeah, they recognized me from being from the Baltics, but this is the first time ever when I actually heard that. Oh wow, you're you're the lucky guys. You're in the EU and, and left early and stuff. Mm. I, I was asking locals about you know their struggles and, and how how all the donbass is going, and they just countered me with all the questions about and how it's like in the EU. Will everything get better and how how is things gonna happen? Mm. One thing that can be noted uh, is that because of this hostile attitude towards the West. A lot of people, specifically in Ukraine, definitely a lot of people think that joining the EU will miraculously solve all their problems and it'll just go away, mm. which is certainly not the case. Because what I had to tell them is that, sure, by becoming more Western, so to speak, yeah, your salaries will increase, but so will the prices, and that's gradually going to happen no matter what. This whole attitude that a lot of people in general are kind of used to being a more in a more collective attitude, if this makes sense, kind of this attitude of, of villages and, and tribes and all these little ethnicities and all that stuff they, they also held together in the Soviet era in, in Central Asia as well you know the, those are republics and, and they're kind of used to a slightly different worldview so when a strong man comes it's kind of easier for them to press on their opinion I suppose due to how the Soviets operated
2: yeah it's a difficult one because obviously you look at these guys like like Kazakhstan particularly which understands the west they they actually work quite a lot with the West when you get to Kazakhstan the you know everyone is asking about, you know, very recent Western content. They were listening to very similar music, apart from they listen to a lot of Russian rap as well. Uh, but they're also in a bit of a position that, you know, unlike Estonia or Latvia where you are or even Ukraine where there are borders and other people you can trade with, when you're in Kazakhstan, there are, you know, in only a few directions you can move your goods in. You can either move it through Russia, to which Russia will then own most of your pipeline and infrastructure and, and logistics. Uh, if you can move it to China, to which China are pretty nasty with how they do business in a lot of this region in the world. Or you try and go through all the other Central Asian republics, which is always a kind of roll of the dice depending on who's in power at the time. And even then, to get to the sort of the ocean and the, the international trade markets, you would have to go through Iran, which is not a good idea when sanctions are on, or you'd have to go through Afghanistan and Pakistan, which are not stable countries and you can't guarantee You know who wants to put a 20-year investment into a company when they go, well, everything we sell has to go through Afghanistan and Pakistan to make it to the oceans. So. A lot of these guys, even though they may want to be closer to the West, they may want to actually you know, engage more in the international systems, are stuck with the fact that their only options are to either trade with Russia or trade with China, and both of them are, are, are not going to be you know, looking for equal partnerships in this one. They're going to look for a, a less than equal partnership.
1: Yes, you said it kind of politely. Uh, also, we have to remember, for example, that um, the Soviets weren't really treating all the Central Asian peoples, nice as well. Mm. I had a whole episode about the Sea and Uzbekistan and the ginormous ecological catastrophe there. Mm. That was just mind-blowing, you know, with all the cotton and everything, which just now uh, has ended up with, uh, with terrible consequences. But if we're speaking about these dictatorships, we have to remember that um, these are not just an officially recognized places – you can look at the, the Chechnya region around Caucasus in Russia. Mm-hmm. It's in many, many ways way more authoritarian than anything you can see in Central Asia. Little oligarchy or something. I, I wouldn't call it oligarchy. Owned by Sheriff, uh, a.k.a. Transnistria.
2: Yep. I've uh, spent some time in, in Transnistria and Sheriff owns everything. Like even towards the, the grocery stores are all Sheriff grocery stores. All the soccer clubs are Sheriff. And they actually live in a, a giant mansion you know, right in the center of town. Uh, it's it's guarded and it's lit up like a Christmas tree all year round. Effectively, those, because there's this instability and this this questions around a lot of things, people tend to drift towards, well, what will make this stable? Uh, and that's when you end up having guys like Ramzan Kadyrov in, in Chechnya or who have been in, the, in, the, in the Turkmenistan.
1: Oh yeah, right. You just need to pronounce his name properly. You want to enter there at some point too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well that's the thing. They used to have this this book called the Rukhnama, which is kind of like a, a mix between the Quran and a book of poems by the previous Turkmen leader. Uh, I, I you know. have it I have it somewhere at home. Yeah, it's um it's amazing.
1: I have North Korean too, but Rukhnana is just so great glorious turkmans do everything <laughs> but
2: even like to get a driving test it'd be you know like when turkman go to the lakes how many stones does he throw into the lakes and you're like four he's like oh, congratulations you can drive now um it's yeah it's it's pretty it's a pretty crazy area of the world um but again it, some people if you ask them will say oh well it's stable and there's been no very little protest and very little coup and you know we've, we've people will feel comfortable investing for 25 years here though i'm just trying to give the other point of view here that A lot of people say that, yes, there's no democracy, but yes, there is stability. And if you look at the only true democracy in Central Asia, they have coups and revolutions and all that kind of stuff. So it's uh, something that hangs over a Central Asian mindset.
1: Well, I kind of understand this kind of mindset since, well, um, everyone check out the Red Lines episode on Bosnia.
0: Mm.
1: I approve that one. (laughs) That's one of the places where I've also visited. And at least I met people there who, of course, were critical of Tito's government and all that happened then. But their argument was, well, at least we didn't kill each other constantly, basically.
2: Mm. Yeah,
1: which is also nice if you think about the Balkans. Them not being at war is is definitely a good thing. Mm. It's very very strange. I walk through Sarajevo, and the war is everywhere in Sarajevo. If you go there, mm. there are those little roads and everything. And if any massive civil war between basically brother nations, because Serbs and Croats and Bosniaks they are they're very very closely related after all. Mm. If, if you have a war in living memory, and then in schools, you learned about the period when, you know, sure that it was socialism and Tito and dictatorship, but at least we didn't shoot each other. That might certainly have a certain appeal, I think.
2: It's also interesting for international businessmen, particularly if, let's say, you're Russia and you have a vested interest in long-term engagement and investment in this region of the world. Something that always rings in my mind is when I was speaking to a pretty high land diplomat from uh, um, you know, an unnamed country in Europe, and he goes, look, you know, we're happy with Biden who's come in. I think it's going to be better for foreign policy, uh, having Biden in power rather than Trump we're also a bit nervous to sign any deals with the US. And I go, oh, well, why is that? He goes, oh, well, frankly, you know, the US, they can have a midterms go wrong and all the deals can be now ripped up like we saw with Iran. Whereas, you know, with China, with these long-term Central Asian, you know, dictators, uh, to put it for lack of a better word, we know that we can sign a deal with them and 25 years on and it'll be either him or his son sitting at the helm. So we feel comfortable investing 25-year lots. Uh, And that's something that always kind of sticks in the back of my mind going, Holy shit, if you are an international investment company and you want to put $100 million on the table, you know a lot of these dictators look somewhat appealing to the outside world. And I think it's, it's then a self-fulfilling prophecy of, well, some of these investment guys want to chuck money into places that are less than democratic because it's stable, which just fuels the less than democratic tendencies in these countries.
1: Yeah, which is side tangent though, but which is why I find it hypocritical when a lot of companies on Twitter tend to post how they care about social issues and all that whatnot and when big oil companies do that it's extra funny because well at least they're pretending but I I highly doubt that any massive huge company is really interested into the well-being of people more than they could actually purchase their products or something it's kind of not in this direction I think
2: the really funny example of this is right now Apple's trying to get rid of the programming terms master and slave uh, which is using programming to sort of you know, tell the computer what to do, uh, but at the same time trying to stop legislation to you know, prove there's no slavery in your supply chains, particularly when it comes to China. Uh, so they're banging on the drum saying, "Well, we can't have the terms master and slave; it's it's too reminiscent of slavery." You know, we don't. We, it's disgusting, rara. At the same time, is trying to block slavery legislation that actually prevents slavery in this in today happening. Uh, at the same time, so yeah, I, I, this is a bit of a bugaboo for me as well. I think this
1: is also kind of reminiscent of of like if right now people would start boycotting volkswagen or something for you know their less than uh, reputable roots (laughs) it's it's companies they 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 change and everything's everything's weird but while we're at ramzan kadirov and thing, because we do have a sadly we do have a limited amount of time (laughs) um i I want to talk about ramzan kadirov at least in my opinion and in a lot of potential opinions that i've read has um has a nice potential of breaking independent from Russia in the future.
0: Hello there. Thank you for tuning in into another episode of the Eastern Border. We are so happy to announce that this episode is brought to you by our friends at Rusansov.com. If you're looking to buy new art, don't forget to use the code Eastern Border for a discount on us. Remember, head over to Rusansov.com and happy shopping. If, however, you want to support our show directly, head over to patreon.com or our website theeasternborder.lv to find out how you can help out. For all things Eastern Border, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Discord. And, as always, thank you so much for supporting us. We really appreciate each and every one of you. That's all from me now. See you online. This podcast... When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds.
1: Because the Soviet Union collapsed, we got all those countries, and there was chaos, and there was everything. But lately, a lot of respectable people state that Russia might undergo a collapse 2.0 under some ethnic lines, because there are some tensions, like in the Kola Peninsula, and all the regions on the Asian side of Ural Mountains, where all the resources are gathered. What do you think? I think it's kind of likely, but not in the way that people expect, because I, I also put a lot, of, a lot of belief that some other even harsher strongman could potentially come to power and we could see some other new waves of dealing with the evil oligarchs with their houses in, in London to just prop up the whole thing a bit.
2: It's a complicated question. Of course it is. <laughs> Welcome to geopolitics. The answer to every question is, it's a complicated answer. Um, yeah, so obviously there are guys like George Friedman who definitely always talk about the the breaking of Russia into seven states. Uh, I think it's less likely. You know, There are some areas of Russia which are you know, very much uh, more Moscow-aligned than others. So, if you were asked guys in, you know, Nizhny Novgorod or Mamansk, you know, they would be hundred percent pro-Moscow. Uh, having spent time up there, they are. There's no chance M- Mamansk is breaking off. They're pretty happy where they are. When it comes to Chechnya and the Chechens, uh, I think that's a different story. I think a lot of them would, you know, if push came to shove, be willing to go down that road. Uh, but right now, they also realize that. Grozny these days is very different to Grozny in the 90s. And Grozny is actually quite a nice city these days comparatively to a lot of other parts of Russia. So Russia effectively has chucked so much money at these you know, these areas that they do worry would cause a domino effect because they worry that if, well, you know, if, if Grozny pulls away, then the Ascetians might pull away, and then we might see guys you know, in the Siberian areas pull away or at Vladivostok might pull away or Kamchatka might pull away. So a lot of Greece is going to the squeaky wheels. And now, particularly the new big project Russia's talking about is the big Caspian Sea base. So the Russians are based their entire Caspian fleet out of, they used to base it out of Astrakhan, which is actually pretty close to Volgograd, which was Stalingrad if you're in World War II buff, which used to be Tsaritsyn.
1: And it used to be Tsargrad and all that
2: stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it was just, you know, we changed the sign every couple of years just to keep everyone guessing. Um but yeah, it's a, it's effectively right up near the border with Kazakhstan and the very north of the Caspian Sea. And Now they're moving it down to Gaspis, which is near Mahachkala, down towards sort of Azerbaijan and Georgia and you know those kind of areas, because they want to put lots of job programs in here, keep everyone employed, keep everyone happy, and give them this level of autonomy. Where, yes, yes, Ramzan Kadyrov controls everything. It's not Moscow who does, but Moscow controls Kadyrov, um, and because is paid very, very well by the Kremlin. So
1: not just by the Kremlin. There was a study recently that showed that uh, 63% of all the jobs for clerks and everything in the institutions is controlled either by Ramazan's extended family or the extended families of his buddies. Yep. 63% of everything. Also, he literally institutes extra taxes Mm. on his own people, and forced by his own gangs of of people. Yeah. Yep.
2: But it keeps him on side. Moscow is, is more than willing to let him run rampant in that region of the world as long as he stays allied to Moscow. Kadyrov particularly is on a very good wicket in, with Putin. So why would he change? Why would he risk, you know, if, if someone else was to try and, you know, take the reins of uh, of the Kremlin, you know, Kadyrov would, knows that he would not have as good a run at things as he probably would under Putin.
1: For non-Australians, there being on the wicket is a cricket term.
2: It's fine. <laughs> yes, I probably play Uh He's on a good, uh, what, what's a good, he's on a good batting streak? I don't know. I don't I'm, know. I'm trying <laughs> to Americanize this for the audience. Um but yeah, he, Kadyrov knows he's on a very good, you know, run with, with Putin. So why would he want to change this? You know, for the same reason that, you know, all these big companies in Russia, whether it be Rosneft or Bashneft or Gazprom, have all have lots of ties with Putin and, and have been paid by Putin and are friends with Putin, and they know that. Well, why would they support a coup or why would they support another party to rise up? Because they're on a very good wicket with Putin at the moment.
1: Well, I think there might be a kind of a better reason right now, since it's a two-way relationship. And uh, I read an article for Carnegie Moscow Center by Tatiana Stanova. Mm. Yeah. yeah, Tatiana. She's a political analyst, and she wrote some comments on the new additions to the new Putin's constitution, Yep. which is going to curb-stomp regional rights in Russia a lot. The governors can just be removed at will, basically. They've turned into an even bigger farce than they used to be. There are basically new powers to the governors, but they have to be even more loyal to basically central government right now. Local parliaments can be basically turned off at will. And municipal levels, municipal authorities, you know, the local mayors and whatever, their powers have been curbed massively. Everything's being even more verticalized, as Putin would like to put it. Mm. They're making sure that the central authority has even bigger authority over the regions. This would probably be quite hard to do in other federative places, where states' rights are still a thing in the United States, as far as I get it. I don't know about Australia, how how centralized or federated you guys are. But currently, there's this new push about how the recent elections showed that, like in Khabarovsk, where... They rigged it and they had a the new governor and all that mess that happened there. People have discovered that they have this potential of voting in people, if not for the Ghost Duma, which is gonna get rigged, then for the local elections, they kinda of got used to voting in people that might not be very friendly with Putin, and especially with uh, this Navalny's uh or smart voting system. Mm. Navalny has its own problems though, I'm not a <laughs> I like Navalny, but I don't love Navalny. Let's just let's just put it that way. He has his own issues. And and as I read it, Yeah, Kadyrov is obviously not extremely happy about all this situation. And recently, the biggest new conflict that happened, which blew up in Russian press, was that Russia, just like any other country, has a committee on civil rights, basically. And one of the guys who was on this committee, although they have to present thesis with their discussions with the president beforehand and all that stuff, one of them actually came in. I think it was uh, Surkov stepped up and said, well, why don't Mr. Putin, we just let Chechnya go? They're literally bringing all of us down, and, and Kadiro is funding terrorism and attacks on journalists. How about we just let Chechnya be and just, just cut off Kadyrov and, and let them be an independent country? And now he's under investigation. He's he's getting, you know, obviously very angry rants from Kadyrov himself. But there is some certain mood in the air and, and the Russian media currently about this whole situation with Chechnya. because... You know, after Kadyrov can just publicly demand a public apologies from everyone. I think Putin at this point, this new law has to show who's boss there because the power dynamic is not just strictly strictly the one of Kadyrov being subservient to Putin constantly. I think he's trying to push and see how far he can go so that at least in localised, he can maybe show up, you know, and, and say that hey, Putin might be there in Moscow, but he's not as strong as everyone thinks. That's that's my theory.
2: It's pretty close to to what A lot of these sort of insiders in, in particularly Russian intelligence, will tell you, and a lot of these, you know, particularly high end guys in Russia will say, is priority one above everything else in Russia is keeping Russia together. And then they'll point to things saying, look, we gave a lot of autonomy, you know, Gorbachev gave a lot of autonomy at the end of the Soviet Union, and look what happened. We will never be the same. We'll never be as strong as we once were. You know, when they talk about sort of letting Kadyrov break off or any of these guys, there is a genuine worry that Russia will shrink to effectively what European Russia, so effectively what west of the Urals, and then there'll be a bunch of satellite states across across the rest uh, from the Urals eastward. Russia cannot afford that; they do not want that. They like priority one above everything. You know, even even above making sure Putin's you know wine fridge is full. Priority one is making sure that Russia stays in one piece. So if they can do anything to keep it together, they'll hundred percent do it. Whether that be paying off Kadyrov, whether it be moving entire air, you know naval facilities south so there's more jobs in that region, whether it be uh, building up you know more infrastructure into particularly sort of ethnically diverse regions you know, around Vladivostok to make sure there are more jobs out there, whether it be making sure that there is a constant food supply of cheap food for some of these Arctic territories to make sure that people there are well fed and happy. You know, Russia knows that if, if a couple of these breakaways happen, you know, again, because the, you know, people went, well, at the end of the Soviet Union, it was, oh, it's only Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. No, that won't break up any further than it did. And everyone then watched the whole thing break into 15 republics. Um, there is a genuine worry that if some of these smaller guys like Ossetia, Chechnya, and, and guys around Vladivostok would break away, then it would cause a lot of the same problems.
1: And uh, for those who don't know, this is a big issue for Russian intelligence things, because well, I... I get some messages from, from guys, but probably not the same guys that you do. They tell me that, always remember the Tatarstan. In 1993, Tatarstan held a referendum to break away from Russia to become their own Tatar thing. Mm. And it was all according to Yeltsin's constitution, but it was disallowed completely. And secondly, Russia, their federation subjects are not just states. Some are republics and some are like autonomous oblasts, stuff like that. And Tatarstan republics hold the special case that they used to be able to elect their own presidents. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, president of the republic, which is a federated in the thing. And Tatarstan hold on to this for a long time. Mm. But now they had an official, a couple of years ago, they had an official document from Moscow stating that, no, 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 the head of Tatarstan can no longer call himself president. Mm. That is the sweet attitude. And other part that I know that can cause this content and why this might actually be a serious reason why these people could want to do some breaking away parts is that in the places of where Russia gets its oil and diamonds and all that stuff, Those places are all minority ethnic Russian, which is what you would expect people who live in Moscow and St. Petersburg, their own nationalities, and they get paid extremely little in comparison to the big guys in Moscow. Because we spoke about this in our last Hearts of Fight on 4 game, which is awesome, and I wish to play it again. Also, Dan Carlin, if you're listening to this, join us. But uh, the thing is that this is an interesting fact about Russia and how it treats itself, Basically is that if you're in the United States or Australia or whatever, imagine that every possible business in your country would be registered and paid taxes in your capital, and maybe slightly in some other city. That's what's happening in Russia, because if Washington DC would be just this massive place where everyone pays taxes so it gets the most money, That's happening in Russia. Every business ever that does anything in any region whatsoever is actually registered in Moscow, and Moscow benefits the most. That's why it is so huge. Like, what, 12 million people live there right now? I think
2: it's around that. Slightly bigger than London, even. Just as a thought exercise for anyone who sort of wants to get an idea of how centralized Russia is, try and book internal flights in Russia. They all go through Moscow. So if you were, let's say, want to go from You know Kazan, which is in the east, to Nizhny Novgorod, which is actually just north of Kazan. You have to fly through one of the Moscow airports if you want to fly from Volgograd to Murmansk. You got to fly through Moscow or Petersburg. You know, even the train lines. If you watch how sort of the Russian train networks work, they all tend to sort of go into Moscow and then breach out from Moscow. Everything, whether it be intelligence or money or taxes or power and influence, tends to go from anywhere in Russia to Moscow and then Moscow from. Moscow outwards the country is, is much more centralized than a lot of the sort of western nations that we used to particularly let's say something like England guys in Manchester can have entire businesses that function in Manchester and, and are governed from Manchester and that's all it is whereas you know when it comes to a lot of these Soviet republics whether it be you know Bishkek in, in, in Kyrgyzstan or, or Moscow in Russia or Minsk in Belarus you know it is all coming through the capital before it heads out to the, uh, the extremities of the country.
1: And that's, by the way, a direct result of how Soviets used to run all of the economy. Mm. Because, obviously, in the Soviet era, as everything was centrally planned, everything had to run past the central committee of the other local party authorities. And then it was kind of a parallel system of government, because technically, if the Soviet Union would run under its own constitution, that would be a pretty nice place to live. Same as with if everyone would follow their own industrial standards because everything had to be double approved by the party officials, and party officials didn't like to move that much. So of kind of stayed. It's an interesting comparison that I found recently, that if you compare the Catholic Church in the late Roman Empire, you have like the Roman state authorities, and then you have Catholic Church, which basically took over after the Roman Empire collapsed. The same can be seen with the party authorities in the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union government. It's very much tied in, and they overlap at the highest ranking. But In the Soviet government, there were also people who were from the army and from the KGB and not necessarily party apparatchiks. But party apparatchiks made everything super, super centralized because they had this kind of political leverage over everyone.
2: Yeah. And that's coming back to that same problem of let's make sure everything stays where it is and make sure there isn't breakaway. And every time we've experimented, you know, this country has experimented with decentralization, it's gone pretty badly. And they'll point to examples as well from China and they'll point to examples from other countries where... Decentralization has led to a breakaway and, and you know a balkanizing of, of a country. So yeah, Russia is very keen to keep things very centralized.
1: But what can they do? What can they do? Because if you think about it, okay, let's presume the best case scenario for everyone. Putin dies. They got a new elected person, everyone is calm, there is no civil war, there is nothing. China does not seize territories it claims next to the Baikal and all that part. They just ignore that part. Um, there is no mass uprising anything. They have a democratically elected leader, which is, well, let's go for it. Let's, let's pick Navalny. Metaphorical Navalny. In this case, I actually, like I said, have some doubts about him. What happens then? You, you get a new leader who's ready to work with everyone and be open and democratic. You know what happens the next day? Ramon Kvitov declares independence instantly.
2: Well, it depends on if they pay him off well enough, because that'll be the choice then. Let's say it was Navalny, and I don't think Navalny would be the person to take over after Putin.
1: Of course not. It's... it's it's a metaphorical, Navalny here.
2: Let's call him uh, Smithsky. You know? <laughs> Smithsky.
1: Let's go. Smithsky is a good name. Uh,
2: Jean Smithsky is going to be a, a John Smith. Ivanovich. You know? Yeah, Ivanovich. Ivan Ivanovich comes to power. Uh, he effectively will now be stuck in a position where he goes, okay, all of the big companies, whether that be you know your big gas companies, your diamond companies, your oil companies, your transport companies, your logistic companies, all these big guys are friends of Putin and they're all taking a lot of money under the table at the moment. So you have a choice of either cleaning house and trying to clean up the corruption, uh, or you have a choice of continuing effectively the shadow government and all the guys that push everything along. Now, if you want to fight the corruption and try and clean out and get rid of all these Putin sycophants out of positions and, and whatnot, they will throw all of their resources against you, and they will make sure that someone comes in power who will keep the gravy train going so even if you manage to fight off whoever Putin's successor is and you fight off all the political instability that comes with that, you still have to then fight all of the oligarchs who will now be against you because they've been on a very good gravy train for decades now. Uh, and then you'll have all the other people who will, you know, like Kadyrov in these very autonomous areas of Russia, who will say, I don't want to live under Ivan Ivansky. You know, screw it. You know, I'm going to go become a republic. And then that will spark problems in in guys like Volgograd and Moscow and the Petersburg Go. Well, you know, if we get Ivan in, then, you know, we're going to break up even worse than we did in the Soviet Union. And, you know, we don't want that at all. So it's then a choice of do you roll over and let the oligarchs continue what they do? Or do you s- submit to the oligarchs and just effectively continue a Putin regime with, you know, a new face? Uh, and that's a pretty, pretty sad <laughs> way to look at things. But it is. I think it's, it's, a, it's a card that someone coming into power after Putin will have to decide on.
1: Yeah, because like you said, geopolitics, there is no easy answer. I've I've been asked also, what do I think about this? And yeah, breaking up of Russia's tinier parts could be beneficial for people living in those regions, at least some regions. Some regions will be just terribly worse off. But when it comes to mind to figuring out what's the best possible scenario for for Russia, I, I honestly can't answer.
2: Mm.
1: I know that for Belarus, what Lukashenko is doing in Belarus definitely, in my mind, is putting the people into a, some sort of a bloodier and more aggressive revolution, the last one was where protesters came out in the streets with air balloons and flags and whatnot. And the next one, they're going to be fighting police with Molotov cocktails and, and bats and possibly guns even, hmm. because Lukashenko is now blatantly showing that, no, 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 while he's physically alive, nothing's going to change there. Putin's in a bit different situation, because uh, unlike Lukashenko, whom I do not consider a rational player at all anymore, Putin is not dumb. Putin is not dumb. I respect Putin. He's evil, but he's not dumb. And I think he's actually clinging on to power currently because he could like retire to Maldives and, and ensure that he and his family and everyone he knows and loves lives a peaceful, happy, super happy life. I think Putin is on the levels of Elon Musk rich, right? Mm. But I think he kind of understands to, that he doesn't want to go into the history books as the you know the guy who destroyed everything. And he also understands that he has to stay there, even though maybe he doesn't want to rule anymore, or maybe he would like to do something else. And he has to prop up his image, have those plastic surgeries and all that stuff. I think he really thinks he's doing the best for Russia because he doesn't read the internet. He's given internet and little red binders to that, that tell him what's happening. He doesn't use smartphones either. So no. I, I don't know. I honestly, when it comes to Russia, I just don't know.
2: Well, let's see. I'm, I'm sure there will be people in Putin's ear saying, Mr. President, you know, you are the only thing holding this country together, that if you die, this country will fall apart into a bunch of republics, and you are the glorious leader holding this republic together. And someone's going to clip that out and throw that at me one day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that you know that's the kind of position he's in when it comes to Lukashenko, he's you know I think he's a little bit smarter but not not as smart as Putin. and I think The interesting thing for Lukashenko is he's been really good at playing the West and Putin off each other. So every time Putin doesn't pay him as much attention, he starts, you know, he goes and has a few talks with the EU. He has, you know, the Polish ambassador will come over and he'll start talking about releasing some of the sanctions. And then obviously Putin goes, "Uh uh-uh, no, don't want that. And Putin, you know, gives Lukashenko what he wants. What's happened now that effectively this big protest has happened and he's had to call on Russia to get him out of the poop? That's it. There's no going to the West now. He knows that the only option now is is looking to Putin. You know he can't play them off against each other because the West won't have them anymore. The West will only accept Belarus in a post-Lukashenko world. And he knows that. Russia knows that. So now Russia has Lukashenko wrapped around the finger and Lukashenko has no way to be able to do these kind of trying to put your feet in both worlds. Obviously, very much closer to Moscow than he is with the West, but- You're going to see things like when you go to sort of South Lithuania, you'll start to see, you know, more Belarusian number plates than there are Lithuanian number plates. That's going to start to disappear. And when you get to the younger generation who all go to Poland and they all go to Lithuania to do their shopping and hang out and they understand that, those doors are closing. And I think the younger people in Belarus, uh, well, again, I haven't been in Belarus for a couple of years now, but the young people in Belarus all know that. But the, the window is closing and they are getting boxed into a point where if Lukashenko was in power, they can only turn to Russia and Russia has a vested interest to keep you in power.
1: I wish to be able to go back to Belarus one day because, uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think that door's closed for me at this point. <laughs> but um, that at Russia, I, I kind of would like to visit the central, central parts, though. Talking about the Central Asia thing, one thing that we've spoken about, Transnistria, Russia itself, Belarus. Mm-hmm. One thing we hadn't mentioned is Nagorno-Karabakh and their median relations with, with Russia and everything, because yep. that's a slippery one. I remember I was in Balkans. Uh, why, when, when the whole last Nagorno-Karabakh conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia came up, and the reasons why Armenia sort of lost the war, well, they did lose it in the end, was the fact that even though Armenia in the previous conflict had way more troops and they were about the same level technologically, there had been a mass brain drain and exodus from Armenia. Meanwhile, Azerbaijan had been like building up stuff, and they had like Turkish drones and mm-hmm. and, and things. What I don't get is why why the Russian government is so a very friendly with Armenian government although well still ex republics and whatever but what's what's the stake there why is this a power play against turkey because i even understand syria because that's all about oil pipelines for russia Mm. and well Prigozhin getting his personal oil thing happening with private warfare company wagner um, my best friends obviously but uh I, i just don't understand what's russia's big play in in armenia
2: so to kind of really oversimplify the whole thing, to go as usual, like crash crack crash course through everything here um, about the sort of a, the sixth of Azerbaijan. The bottom left-hand corner is a place called Nagorno-Karabakh. It's effectively a bunch of Armenians living inside the borders of Azerbaijan. In the early nineties, when the Soviet Union fell apart, whilst Azerbaijan was just you know fighting itself trying to figure out who takes the reins, Armenia pushed a bunch of troops in and took not only the sort of island of armenians living in azerbaijan but also the kind of territory around it uh, and called that the republic of Artsakh, Uh, and that's where we sat for a long time with these armenians occupying about a sixth of azerbaijan uh, because they wanted to protect the ethnic armenians inside that area and this was so incredibly important to both these countries out of the last 13 or 15 prime ministers of armenia have been born in Artsakh, and that's just nuts to me it would be like you know, every American president being born in Florida. Like it's just it's just a weird like that's everything towards those guys.
1: Wait, wait, Armenian Azerbaijani conflict to our American listeners is basically as intense and weird as as the Middle East in Israel and Palestine. It's it's all, all that.
2: It's it's the most venomous conflict of it I've seen. You know, that's the thing. I've I've sat in bars and I've sat, you know, all over the all over the place. And I can sit with Russians and Georgians and Russians and Ukrainians and, and Latvians and Lithuanians and Kazakhs and Uzbeks and Uzbeks and Kyrgyz, and as much as you know they may have governments that have tensions with each other, everyone has a mother-in-law they don't like and everyone will, you know, bitch about something. And we can all get along and have a drink. When it comes to Azeris and, and Armenians, just, just venom. Like it's it's really, really nasty. Anyway, so effectively, as as you said, Armenia's relationship had just they hadn't, you know, there's a lot of brain drain. The economy was very stagnant, uh, whereas Azerbaijan's economy was booming. They've got all this gas in the Caspian. They're buying all these weapons. They brought a lot of certain mercenaries in from Chad and the UAE. Uh, they bought a lot of Turkish drones in. There was some Israeli help in there as well. And the war kicked off again. And effectively, they took most of the, you know, the old Azeri bits like Shushar and whatnot uh, around Nagorno-Karabakh and left this pocket uh, rather than having this kind of a sixth of Azerbaijan gone, or yeah, a sixth of Azerbaijan occupied by Armenia. Now it's down to this just tiny pocket of Armenians living in Nagorno-Karabakh. And that was very deliberate because if they'd taken all of it, then, you know, effectively what, what has Armenia got to lose at that point? Whereas now they've left it as a little pocket full of Armenians living in, in Nagorno-Karabakh that they can use as effectively hostages. Uh, And now you know whereas before the the cannons were you know hundreds of miles to the east of the capital of now the cannons and artillery are overlooking Stepanakert when you're sitting in Stepanakert there are Azeri snipers and Aziri artillery pieces pointing at the town at all day every day which is terrifying and effectively that's a giant sign of okay we're going to let you have this pocket of this tiny little pocket of Armenians inside Nagorno Karabakh but if you dare act up against us we can shell them in 30 seconds yeah, so Russia's an Armenian tie there. Two things. Uh, Sergey Lavrov, the current foreign minister of Russia, is an Armenian, which is always interesting in this angle. Uh, but Russia's at most bases, uh, the, the Russian use for military operations inside the Middle East are based out of Armenia. Armenia has a lot of Russian bases inside and air, air facilities as well. So all your Syrian operations mostly come out of Armenia. Uh, and Russia's been using Armenia as a sort of a, a good staging point for a lot of operations. So... Russia has usually actually been closer to Armenia than they have been to Azerbaijan, because Azerbaijan, you know, to put it very politely, is is a is the Diet Coke of Turkey. Um, <laughs> uh, You're yeah. not wrong. God, I'm just annoyed the whole country. Um, You're on
1: the eastern border. This is what we do on a daily basis. I I don't know. (laughs) Someone is going to send in um, an angry email saying that we didn't mention the specific problems of their country, definitely. (laughs)
2: Uh, Look, I I haven't called the Belgians swamp Germans yet, so I think I'm fine. Um, No, no, those 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 would be the Dutch. Belgians don't just (laughs) exist. (laughs) Uh, They're just French that wish they were German. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, let's move on swiftly before we we annoy a whole bunch of other people. So, um, yeah. So, we're we're talking about, uh, I mean, obviously, Azerbaijan right now is really important to Russia because, A, that's the link between Iran and Russia because they can run the train lines through there. Uh, And, B, it's far richer than Armenia. You know, Russia would love a a piece of that pie. uh, And Armenia is just not a particularly financially, you know, booming economy. But Armenia still offers the military cooperation and the Armenians- are far closer to the Russians, uh, as well as the fact the Armenians will jump into every Russian defense treaty there is, whether it be, you know, CTSO those kind of guys. You know, if Russia says, "Hey, let's form a cool kids club of of cool pro Russian nations," Armenia will be the first to chuck their hands up. That's effectively where we're at. That the the Azeris won the war, uh, and it is chaotic in Armenia at the moment. They all, you know, for the last few months, everyone walks around like the worst thing in the world's happened because it is to those guys. This is the worst thing in the world that's ever happened and now there's a hostage situation going on in, in you know in Nagorno Karabakh where at any time uh, uh, you know Azerbaijan can restart this war and it will be devastating because rather than the war slowly inching towards the capital the war will begin in the capital Stepanakert
1: and the fun part of all of this is that remember we've been talking almost an hour here but to put this into context we started the discussion by mentioning the fact that oh yeah there, there could be some weirdness happening in Ukraine in January <laughs> now this is why i you kind of love western twitter because people in the west tend to worry about the craziest things which i don't just understand I meanwhile well, hey here's a whole millions and millions of people who are like really into walking a tightrope basically mm. but to finish kind of this one up and if you have way more questions than you started this episode remember we both have podcasts with lots of episodes on them you can just go and check them and michael's the red line show will be on my feed too you can go and click the link and listen to him being very professional with, uh, with better experts than me,
2: at <laughs> well, least more academical ones. definitely. They make much less jokes. You know, that's, that's the thing. It's very, very professional, unfortunately.
1: Well, I mean, it has to be, I understand them. Like I can, I can be here and, and making dark, dark comedy, but I very much use their work anyways. But, <laughs> At least in this day and age, you have to be at least slightly funny. At least for me, not to not to go insane.
2: The funny bit, sorry, to go behind the scenes here. The funny bit is when you speak to most of these ambassadors and stuff, they are just as funny and tell just as dark jokes. But they go, "Hey, the tape's off," and I go, "Yeah, the tape's off." I'm like, the following people suck, and they just let loose. Uh, and it's just there's so much tape that you go, "That is hilarious," and I love to release that, but. You know, I, don't, I also don't want to be the reason there's World War Three. even though that World War Three would be fantastic for the ratings for the show, but I think that's probably not worth it.
1: <laughs> uh, okay, clip this out and post it to something. I really hope Russia invades Ukraine because then our ratings are going to go up, TM. Okay, don't, 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 no, it's bad. <laughs> no, but to be, to be fair, I, I just recently read a, a kind of a... One of the things that I mentioned on my latest Twitter space was the fact that there was a Levada Center, and we'll kind of wrap this up on this. There was this Levada Center query of, of Russian people, what do they think, how likely the war is. And um, previously I had read on Twitter, it's one of the things that you use, this meta something where you can vote on various issues and there's percentage of people who agree. And Levada Center kind of asked the Russian people, how likely do you think is the possibility of these border conflicts, as they call it, to start a war? And 38% of respondents said it's extremely likely, 33 said it's very likely, and 3% said it's inevitable. So it's over 75% of Russian people who think that actual warfare between Russia and Ukraine is at least likely. And secondly, 94% of all those who are questioned stated that it's definitely going to be a NATO uh, slash Ukrainian invasion of Russia that's going to prompt all the situation and that the West are to blame. And I know that in the West, people look at it differently, but I, well, blame all the media apparatus there. But that's the view on the ground in Russia as of uh, 14th of December when the query was made. What do you think? What, what's the likeliness? Because I, I give the likeliness about 30% chance of happening, you know, about 30%. Now, it used to be a bit higher, but then I read more on it. I give the possibility of a real war starting 30%, which is a lot, a lot more than I would like. But mm. that's my take. What's, what's your take?
2: So... It really depends. So if you ask, will Russia be at war with Ukraine, then you can say, well, technically they kind of are at the moment. There are Russian forces sitting in Luhansk and Donetsk as we speak, whether they be officially there or not, whether they be just incredibly well-armed tourists or not. You can already say they are involved. Whether they go in and you know do the famous push to the Dnieper River, I'm kind of doubtful. Um, I don't see what Russia gains from that. And it's a risk." Of entangling a much larger, much nastier war by doing that, you know, Russia right now has got the best of every possible situation with Ukraine right where it is. They have this, you know, autonomous republic in the east that they can ratchet the tension up or down depending on you know how Ukrainian politics is going. Uh, if they want a stronger candidate, they want to make the Ukrainian leader look weak. They can push some more troops in if they want to make it. You know, help him in an election. They can sign some deals that actually do nothing, but, you know, give him a lovely press conference to say that he's stood up to Russia. Uh, Ukraine cannot join NATO because you can't join NATO if you have a territorial dispute, which is fantastic for Russia. That's why they keep these breakaway frozen republics in, you know, uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan and Georgia and Moldova. Uh, so, that's fantastic for Russia. For pipeline-wise, anyone who's looking at using Ukraine as their sort of transit method through, uh, Russia can up the tension and effectively go to Russia-preferred pipelines, particularly some of the Nord Stream ones going to the Baltic. So for me, for Russia to go and push to the Dnieper River and make the big move, it's a big risk, and I don't see what they're militarily gain from it. I mean, eastern Ukraine, lovely. Karkov's a beautiful city, and the pancakes, there are lovely. I know. But is it I- worth risking war with NATO? <laughs>
1: I highly recommend visiting Ukraine, by the way. I loved it there. I loved Mariupol, and going to Donetsk and Luhansk, not very recommended for sane people. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it can be done if you really try hard yeah. and are willing to, you know... Um, if you try hard enough, yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Look, if you have a bunch of cigarettes and and, uh, and whiskey with you and uh, you're, you're polite and you can pay some bribes, you can get out there pretty well Well,
1: yeah, that, <laughs> I guess so. Then again, we... This talk has given me so much material for, for other episodes. I think Nord Stream itself can be a whole hour-long discussion about everything there easily but but, but sadly, sadly, you know, it's a bit over an hour, and Anata is going to murder me if I continue like this. <laughs> so let's <laughs> no, it was, it was really nice talking to you. Michael, um I hope everyone who listened to this, you gotta go and check the Red Line out, and I hope people who came here from Redline you'll you'll listen to my show as well. We're not half bad sometimes.
2: <laughs> You know, I, I would say you're not even six-tenths bad. <laughs> <laughs> no. Honestly, you, you, like, one of the first, I remember when I first came in on a show back when the Red Line was just starting. It was like episode six or something we do in Transdistria. One of the real early days. And even then, like, I was a huge fan of your work and I still am. Thank like, you, ben. Every time you put out a good piece, I'm like, yep, nope, this is going straight to the top of my list. So I've been a a very long time fan. You've had a quite influence on the red line. Of it,
1: yes. Well, uh, thank you so much because I, I listen to red. The red I listen to your show because it's more, it's more of a formal take and Hey, you know what? Some of those guys who invite on the show, they really don't write in English. You can only hear them in English on your show. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Which yeah. Is
1: great. So, uh, yes, give your final words to our beloved comrades here. And I might call the KGB agents behind your back off. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, I apologize to everyone in Belgium. I apologize to everyone in Azerbaijan. Um, no, I don't. I don't apologize to Belgium at all. You almost lost my luggage once. It's a whole other thing. Um, it's been absolutely fantastic being here. Check out The Red Line if you want really deep geopolitical analysis. I know the next episode we're doing is on Russia's Pacific Doctrine, which I think is something that everyone just keeps forgetting. They have an ocean over that side of the world.
1: Oh, oh, oh. I, I'm going I'm to listen to that one because- I wanted to make an episode on their Pacific fleet that I sat down and understood that it's going to have to be a three-parter and I just oh, put yeah. the project that's somewhere there.
2: It's, a, it's a, a weird, you know, I remember someone asking like, oh, what's the, going with the Pacific fleet? I was like, yeah, it's an interesting question and I went to go look for stuff and there's really not anything out there that's, you know, easy to read that isn't a 400-page document of, well, frankly, this documentary uh, it would express that the Russian Pacific, you know, is really boring stuff. Um, so yeah, the Russian Pacific Fleet is I think our next episode, and after that I think we're looking at uh, terrorist funding models, uh, how effectively terrorism is funding, and how it, what makes it really hard to crack down on, on ISIS funding and whatnot. So, yeah, we're into weird geopolitical stuff with a lot of smarter people than myself and uh, a lot more serious. And there's a you know I sound much more depressed on that one because I don't get to talk to her. Find guys like yourself, I get to talk to the senior ambassador to a certain country.
1: Wow. Okay. Uh, thank you. And uh, hey, if, if you ever want want me to comment and comment on something too, um let me know.
2: Anytime, anytime, my friend. <laughs>
1: Can't wait on the next hearts of Iron Game too. Sounds good. Okay. and and have a great holiday time, non-specific one, to not offend anyone.
2: That's what I'm doing. Ya lobo uh you're
0: a
1: Okay,
0: bye. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.